There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I am Matilda Sturridge. When I was 20, I believed that you fell in love, got married, and lived happily ever after. When I was 21, I was pregnant. When I was 22, I was a single parent. As this is the first episode of Bringing Up Us, the podcast, I thought that I'd give you a little introduction of myself. I am mother to Rudy, who is seven. Became a single parent around sort of three, four months after he was born. I was definitely someone who was very naive to life growing up in the way that I really did think that it was as simple as just falling in love, getting married and living happily ever after. And I'd have lots of babies and it'll all be wonderful. Um, becoming a single parent at the age of 22 was a, a bit of a shock. Although it was different, it has been the greatest seven years of my life. And being biased, I think I have produced the greatest human of all time. And I love being a mum so much. And I've also, weird to say, I've really enjoyed being a single mum. I've had such a happy time and I think that the word single mum is so scary but I also feel like I haven't done it alone. I've got the most incredible family who have completely supported me and carried me through this and two years ago I met the most incredible man who is now part of our world and it's been a wonderful journey to share with Rudy my 20s. I am so excited that we have our first guest, Emma Freud. She is a broadcaster, a writer, a script editor, the director of Comic Relief, and she is a mother of four. This is a podcast about how your expectations of parenthood are often altered by the course of your life. This is Bringing Up Us. Did you have an idea of the kind of parent that you wanted to be before, obviously, you became a parent, even if you wanted to be a parent? Because I, because I worked in television throughout mm. my 20s, unfortunately, I have video evidence of awful things that I said when I was a very unformed, not particularly intelligent, overconfident, under-resourced girl. And one of those pieces of video evidence I have is of me on a chat show in France. I have no idea why I was there. In Paris. And the woman said to me, what sort of parent do you think you'll be? And I said, when I become a parent, I will never work again. I will spend all my time looking after my children. 
um, because my mother didn't do that, and I was I hated the fact that she was never there for us, uh, and just all this bollocks came out of my mouth. Um, and then I had four children and still work quite a lot. Yeah. So that you know, the complete and utter shite. Because yeah. <laughs> you were you were you were well established in work when you had Scarly, your yeah. eldest. Yeah, I was. And was that a big decision to go, okay, I, I want children now. I want to put children into the mix. How honest do you want me to be? Really honest. Okay, so by the time I'd got to my early 30s, I was having such a lovely time with my boyfriend, who's called Richard Curtis, who's fantastic. Just Richard Curtis. Just Richard Curtis. What a guy. Just a lovely man. Um, that I thought, well, let's not bother to have children then, because why would you want to change what is going on right here? And we you know, had a life which involved going to the movies and going to Pizza Express, and as far as I was concerned, that's all I wanted to do yeah. for the rest of my life. Um, and then my best friend got pregnant and rang me up and said, I'm having a baby. And I thought, oh, man, I, we were going to do that together. And if she's having... I can't... I, sh I had FOMO, I guess. Yeah. So I thought, well, I'd better do it. And so um, I went straight to the chemist and I bought one of those sticks. And those I, ovulating sticks. Yeah. They terrify me. Terrifying. And I did the weeing thing. And then the day it said, it finally said, you are ovulating, um, I rang Richard and said, come home now. And he was editing The Vicar of Dibley. And he said, I can't. And I said, well, wake me up when you come home. And he came home at 5am. And he woke me up. And we conceived Scarlet at 5am. Why have I told you this story, Matilda? I haven't even so told Scarlet that. Romantic. Uh, and it was. That was the first. That, that was it. That was her. And, uh, and it was really done through not wanting to be left behind by Joanna Kay. So it was quite a sort of a rush decision. Yeah. It to suddenly go, I'm going to do it. Yeah. And then I actually, I think I went into slight mourning for the first year of Scarlett's life as I couldn't really believe that I'd given up this gorgeous existence, just living very happily with Richard and working and doing whatever we wanted. Yeah. And had suddenly become, you know, as you well know, a full-time mum. And it was... I, I remember from the very first Sunday that I had her, she was born on a Wednesday, and on the first Sunday I remember her crying and waking me up to be fed and just turning, waking up Richard and saying, not today as well, it's Sunday. Sure. And it, I really hadn't thought it through to that extent. At least I thought I would get weekends off. Yeah. Because it was a big, it's a big transition. It's huge. It's huge. And did, when you had Scarlett, how long did you not work for? I got in a real muddle about work. Um, I wanted to go on working, but I very much wanted to work for part-time, which is what I've done ever since. I've never worked full-time. Yeah. Um, and I've always been able... I've been in a lucky enough position that I was able to pick and choose my job. So mm -hmm. I've... You know, if I, if the kid... If somebody was ill or if somebody was having a tough time at school, I just didn't work. As a freelance, you can do that. You know, you just say, I'm not going to do not anything today. for this month, even... And then I'm only going to work mornings or whatever. So I've always just been random like that. But I had a job that I'd done twice before, which was um, covering the Edinburgh Festival for the BBC, mm. a show called Edinburgh Nights. And I adored it. And I'd done it twice. And I thought, and then Scarlet was due five weeks before, no, seven weeks before it started. 
And so I said, well, at seven weeks, I'm sure I'll be fine. So I'll go and do And I had a very good contract. I was only working part time. They're going to let me off for breastfeeding, all of that. Yeah. I never had to walk from work for more than three hours in a row, even though I sometimes did two shifts in a day. But it was, you know, they really tied it around to me. But for the whole of the seven weeks leading up to that first job, I was in a panic. I just couldn't I looked at her and thought how am I ever going to be in a place in seven weeks time where my breasts aren't leaking where I am happy to leave you where someone else can take you and I won't be stressed about it what if it goes wrong how do I I can't even wash my own body at the moment I can't imagine going back into that work environment but I did and it was fine when you were pregnant, did you think that you'd be completely fine going back to the work environment? Did you kind of go, oh, I'll have her and it'll be fine and it'll be normal and, you know, someone will be there to look after her and it'll all be OK? Yeah, because, you know, as you well know, yeah. I was completely yeah. clueless and I yeah. thought I'll have weekends off as well. Yeah. So I, it just hadn't occurred to me the level of commitment it was going to be. And yeah. then it, nothing else occurred to me for seven weeks. And it really messed up. I mean, I was going to be messed up anyway. I was such an overthinker and I was in such a pickle and I was so unprepared. But that first seven weeks was absolutely overshadowed with this fear. Six weeks to go, five weeks to go, yeah. four weeks to go till I have to go back to work. And then the job itself was only three weeks. And I think after it, I didn't work for ages. And did Scarlett come with you? She very much did. And she wasn't the easiest of babies. She was noisy. She was. She screamed a lot, and she was gripey, and she was colicky, and she got chickenpox while we were there. And you know, she was. That if she didn't make life very easy for me in that sense. But do you feel like you were treated differently? Did everyone kind of go, oh, "Okay, Emma's back, but she's got a baby now, and this is going to be tricky for us"? And you know, we'll do it because we like her. But yeah, I think that did happen. I mean, no one said that to my face, but yeah. I think I think it was. Did you feel it? Did you did you ever kind of sit there going, "Oh God, I feel oh, I, um, uncomfortable," or that you know your head is in so many places and you're doing your job, but you're also going, "Oh my God, is she having great water?" Or I need to feed her in ten minutes. And I did. Yes, all of the above. Uh, there's one. The first time I took her into the Edinburgh Night Studio. So she'd have been exactly seven weeks old. And I went in and I thought, I'd done the show twice before with the same team. I really liked them. We had lots of late nights, which I obviously never had again with them. Um, But I went in thinking they'd be so excited to meet my first baby. That awful thing that mothers think other people are going to be interested in your child. Until you realise, it's like, can you stop talking about your child now? It's literally like watching paint dry. Um, but look, here's my baby. She's called Scarlet. I chose the name and everything. Isn't she lovely? And everyone's like, yeah, she's great. Um, and then she started to scream. And so I took her into the uh, gallery of the studio where there was no one filming at the time. So it was a quiet space and I could sit down and breastfeed her. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and I was so stressed by the fact that I was in... You know, I'd been building up to this terrible moment for seven weeks. I was so stressed that I was in the studio and nobody was interested in the baby and the baby was screaming and they were obviously going, she's a terrible mother who doesn't know how to stop her baby screaming, which was true, that I went in and I fed her and I, while I was breastfeeding her in the gallery, I had a cigarette. <gasps> so I breastfeed I know, really I've never bad. even known you to smoke. It's such a long time ago. It's 25 years ago. It was awful and at the end of it, I put the cigarette out, I started to burp her and she puked all over the desk. It went really well for you that day. So I didn't take her into work again after that. (laughs) 
<laughs> and also, I didn't tidy up the desk. I thought they won't know. You just run. It was baby vomit. You know, it's quite liquid. And it sort of seeps into the faders and the mixers. But it still has that real sort of <laughs> dense stuff. I just left with the smell of smoke. Oh, my God. Yeah, sorry. That is a, that is a, that, we're in a safe space. Oh, we're in a safe space. Okay, you're saying that, but your face is saying... Okay. What? Yeah, I'm not friends with you anymore. I just want to have that image of a fag in your mouth while breastfeeding a tiny baby. I once breastfed while driving. That's amazing. Thank you for saying that's amazing rather than that's illegal. I mean, completely illegal, but I mean, amazing. Thanks. Wonderful. Cheers. Um, you then, so, quite a, a, a rash big decision. You had Scarlett, thought, my best friend's having a baby, I'm going to have a baby. Then you went... From one to four. I know. Four is a big number. I know. Did you all, I mean, did, did you go, and we're going to have four kids? When no. you had Scarlett, were you like, I, I want four? No, I want when, when I had Scarlett, I thought, I will never, ever do this again. Yeah. These children puke in gallery studios. Yeah. I'm not ever doing this again. And then I got pregnant by, with Jake by mistake. Sorry. Jake. He knows this. I've Such mentioned this to him before. The other kids love telling him that. <laughs> Um, and then, having had two, I was quite keen on having a third. And actually, rather than that being a logical decision, I think I was just very hormonal. And I think when you are very hormonal, when you've had two babies quite soon back to back, you there's so much of that, whatever that hormone is called, going around your body that it feels like an incredibly good idea to have another one. Yeah. That's how I look at it now. Um, and then there was a bit of a gap because we went and lived in Bali with the two kids. Did you? Yeah, and I didn't want to have a baby in Bali. I didn't know that. Because How long got did you live in Bali? For six months. Wow. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't want to have a baby there, so I didn't want to have a baby, a newborn there, and I didn't want to have a baby there. So there was quite a big gap between my second and my third child, who we uh, sorted out when we got back. And then I had Spike two years after Charlie. So that was four and eight years. So what... Yeah, I was going to say, what is the age gap between all of them? So Emma has Scarlett... Who's 23. Jake. 21. Charlie. 17. And Spike. 15. God, so, I mean, you had them in sort of... Yeah. Not bad. Wow. Yeah. And how... And how... the idea that when I had three children under the age of six, that I thought to myself, oh, do you know what we need? Another child. I don't know why they did. Yeah. But... You know, he's... Did you ever think about having another one? Because I feel like there are a lot a of fifth. people that say, yeah, well, there are a lot of people that say that when you have four, you might as well go for six. Okay, so four children. That's amazing. Can we just quickly talk about what that has been like and the juggle of having four children? I mean, has it, was it okay? With what, and also you are so, you know, you are not just a, a mother of four children. You work so much and, you know, you're the director of Red Nose Day. I mean, you're the director of the biggest charity. How, 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 how do you do this? Well, I don't know. Um, my work is still part time. I absolutely could not work full time. But is it, you say that it's part time, but is it part time in the fact that you don't go off to work is your work always there at home are you always kind of at six o'clock when you know you've done supper for the kids are you kind of going oh, i've just got to make sure that i've got this email out yeah, do you no, ever switch huge, off no i never switch no. off and there's a huge amount of you know i've made supper and i'll go and do an hour yeah. at my desk while the kids are doing their homework and you know all of that um but i i'm i'm mostly i'm based at home um, I am. I see them off in the morning, and I'm there when they come home from school. I won't really have meetings after four o'clock. 
Um, and if there's any issue, then I just ditch the work and I go with the kids. So when Scarlett, my first child, got sick, um, I, I, I've, I rarely left the house at all. I mean, I still worked. I still ran my side of Red Nose Day. I still did all of that. But, but I did it from the house. And I did it um, prioritising the children rather than prioritising the work. And you can still get a huge amount done. And I loved it. I mean, I, I couldn't have been a full-time mother. I have the utmost respect for women who can do that. And I absolutely couldn't have done. But I couldn't have worked full-time either, ever. Yeah. So utmost respect for people who can manage that as well. Well, it's the juggle. Yeah, it's the juggle. And the juggle never, ever stops. I remember, I mean, for years and years in the early days of having, you know, 82 children or as how what it felt like, I thought there will be a point where I get the balance and I go, ah, this is, this is how it's going to be. This is how it's meant to be. And that has never happened in 23 years. I have to rebalance and rejuggle it every single week probably every week I look at my diary and go okay that's too much this is coming out this is coming out. I'm not going to go to that I'm going to get someone else to take over this whole project because I can't do that. or I look at it and go oh almost nothing in my diary this week I'm going to get in touch with Red Magazine and ask them if I can write an article about something though you know so yeah. but the balance never stops that's really interesting I think that you feel when people get to a certain point that the you know, they've got it and you're like, God, they've got it together. They've got that balance so good. And I think it's always so nice to hear that it, it's always ongoing, that battle. Because as soon as you've got the balance right, you know, your boyfriend gets a cold and is home being fluey and suddenly everything has to change again. Or one of the kids gets expelled or, you know, it just it because because human life never balances itself. That's always changing. So if you are there in support services mode, which is completely how I see myself, you are always, you know, monitoring it around other people's health, yeah. happiness, productivity, contentment, diet, you know. Yeah. It's just When nervous. with work, I was thinking, when Richard gets a film, you are so closely involved not only do you script edit but you are you are such a big part of all of his films you were there on set you uh from pre and post-production and during a film is such a big undertaking with a family of four kids and a film that's being filmed in Cornwall or wherever how do you do that because film is not kind time-wise and it does not fit into a family day. You're so right. How do you do that? I've always well, I do it in the same way that I do everything else, which is I dip in, I dip in and out. So the last film that we shot, we set it in Suffolk, which was nice, so that that's where our family home is, so that it, you know, we could base ourselves in the in our family home. And I would never visit set for more than three or four hours at a time. Right. So Richard might go off at five o'clock in the morning, but I would then do the kids' breakfast, get them off to school, go onto the set and still be back when everybody came home from school. And if there was an issue, I just wouldn't go in. So as script editor and associate producer, you kind of can do that. And even if you can't do that, I am doing that. That is how it works. When we filmed About Time, it, we shot that over the summer holidays. We took a house in the house next door to the house that we were filming in, literally the next door house. 
And all the kids came down and they were all there. They were all in it at some point. They all had a part as an extra. None of them liked it much. Um, apart from Jake, who was then, I think, 17 and got to play teenagers snogging a girl in the corner of the party. But um, we were just there. And again, I was with the kids and then I would zip over to the set and be there for a couple of hours and then come back and be with the kids and take them in with me or not. And Did the kids ever resent it? Did they go, mm, you know, we don't want to spend our summer holiday in Cornwall making a film with you guys? Did you have to kind of sit them down and go, this is what we're going to do and we're going to make it amazing for everyone? But did they ever go, Mom? I just want to go to Ibiza. No, they they don't. No, not really. I mean, there isn't much point. It's just the way it is in our house. Yeah. You just have to, you know, yeah. you sort of get in line. And also they could try that, but I would be so horrible to them if they were, if they, if they kicked back against any of that sort of plan that, and also, you know, I do, I, I let, oh, I'm, you know, I am very bossy as a mummy. And I do lecture them quite often saying the reason that we are able to live in this house and the reason you are able to go to the school that you went to and wear these clothes and be as warm and cosy as you are in winter is because dad spends, you know, a quarter of his life making films which pay for all those things. And as a family, we have to facilitate that. So that's just how it is. Yeah. The end. Yeah. With your social life. Yes. I feel I'm very lucky enough to have been invited away to your lovely house in Suffolk sometimes and round to your house for dinner. When I say invited, I've actually always invited myself. You do, Emma has you? never invited me anywhere, <laughs> but I will find that something's going on and will send Emma a message being like, oh, God, that's so great this is going on and I can't wait to see you there. <laughs> and Emma has to somehow... It is a brilliant tactic. Yeah. You're my only friend who does that. I know. New Year's Eve. I wasn't invited, but no, I'm coming. I know. I mean, I've, and I've, I've rented a cottage and everything. <laughs> I mean, I'm really, I'm really committing. Um, I, your house is just an unbelievable hub, and every time I go round, it's just full of, you know, mixed generations. I feel it's just full of kids and people, and it's just so much fun. And I just kind of go, you're you, the way that you've. It just feels like it's just always busy. And you're, you, you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You've got such a great social life and you have four children, but you've managed to create such a wonderful hub for everyone, for your 14-year-old, for your 17-year-old, for your 23-year-old, for you, for your friends, for your boyfriend. How do you do that? Because that's something that I want to do so much. Oh, Matilda, such a great thing to say. Thank you. So with... The children. So I was brought up in London and every holiday we spent in Suffolk. So I never went abroad till I was 18, really. And um, I wanted to do the same thing for my kids because I love that. So we very rarely take them abroad. Occasionally we will. But mostly we spend four months of every year in Suffolk. And in order for that to work, they had to really want to be in Suffolk. And in order for that to happen, it I knew that I had to make it not a house in the country where we go and they, you know, play with the hoops and run through the fields and then go, I'm really bored, I want to go to a party in London. It had to be, the party had to be where they were. So we've just been lucky enough to surround ourselves with friends who also go there, who have kids of the same sort of age. So there becomes a whole gang and it's a tiny village. And they have freedom to do whatever they like there and they have done since they were tiny. So the kids buy into wanting to be there. And as soon as that happens, everybody's happy. Because as soon as they're not being dragged off away every holidays to spend two months in Suffolk when they would much rather be doing, you know, more exciting or glamorous things than being in this little village, as soon as they're happy with that, then everything kind of fits into place. And it's I've always tried to put as much effort into making our home uh, as much fun and as joyful as Richard puts into making his movies fun and joyful. So that's a kind of double thing. I think that you've done so well. I'm really, really touched that you say that. You know, with Rudy, I feel like I just want to always give him amazing experiences and memories, and I feel like you have really created that for your children. And I know that every time Rudy is obsessed with Emma and her family, the Curtis Clang, so much so that he said that when he grows up, all he wants to do is live next to Spike, <laughs> and then he'll be happy. Poor Spike. I don't think he feels the same. Um, but I, I just want to create just such a lovely time for him. Well, I'm I'm thrilled. And I think one of the keys to that is my kids have never been to Disneyland. <laughs> <laughs> and they don't and I think I think if you if you if you make something that's sustainable as fun as you can, rather than looking to glamorous, you know, overseas destinations mm. and and, you know, house parties in hotels in Italy and all that. I and mean, we've never done anything like that. Yeah. And I think as the more you can keep it um, little and make the little experience big is much easier than making a big experience sustainable 
And it also means I think those memories go very deep. We went out to dinner the other day with um, with our friends, um, Sarah and Simon, who we spent most of our life in Suffolk with. And we were and it was a birthday and we were talking about our histories together. And all the chat was, oh, do you remember that terrible game of musical chairs we did at Jake's fourth birthday? And do you remember when we all went had to do colouring in for an entire day? And do you remember when we'd and there were all these incredibly lame memories that went very deep with the kids. And what they weren't was going, oh, do you remember when we went to the Maldives? Or yeah. do you remember that extraordinary trek around Cambodia? Yeah. You know, there was none of that. It was just, it was, but but the experiences were more visceral, I think, yeah, because they completely. were homegrown and homespun and pretty hokey and pretty lame and yeah. actually not much fun. Yes. In which case you find the fun when there isn't the fun being, you know, offered to you on the end of a snorkel line. So Emma, yes, this podcast, yes. it's all about how we have a sort of an idea and an ideal of who we're going to be and the family that we're going to make. And then life happens yes. and we adapt. As you just touched on, Scarlett, your eldest daughter, for those of you who don't know, Emma and Richard's eldest daughter, Scarlett Curtis, which by the way is a great name. Oh, thank I you. I feel like it just rolls off the tongue so nicely. She is incredible and if you haven't heard of her, she is an activist, she is a columnist, she's a published writer. She created a book called Feminist Don't Wear Pink. It's out now. Get it. She's the co-creator of the Pink Protest. She is a, for the 23, it's sort of beyond how much that she's achieved. She's a student. She has a degree to finish. (laughs) She also has a degree to finish. You must do that. (laughs) Education is very important. Um, But Scarlett got ill when she was 14. Um, She has actually spoken about it so beautifully and bravely. And I just listened to Bryony Gordon's podcast, Mad World, where Scarlett talks about it and talks about her relationship with you um, she had an operation at 14 which went wrong and took a very long time to figure out what had gone wrong. And from that, she had a lot of not only physical but mental health issues. She's spoken about it, like I say, so beautifully. But from the side of a mother, how was that? Having your perfectly fine 14-year-old doctor go in and have an operation which she thought would be easy and simple and a few weeks recovery and then started a really horrific experience? It was awful. It was the worst five years of my life. Um, And if I'd known it was going to be five years, I don't know how I would have handled it. I remember thinking... Um, I remember thinking before it had ever happened that it was that I was incredibly, incredibly lucky that none of my children had had um, any major physical or mental deformities in any way when they were born, Um, because I didn't ever feel that I was the sort of person who would rise to that situation well. Um, I don't know that anybody ever thinks they're the sort of person who would, but I certainly thought, you know, I would just be hopeless. I had a rabbit a while ago and it got conjunctivitis and I just gave it to someone else. <laughs> you know, I'm not really good like that. Um, but when it happened to us, firstly, we thought it would last, you know, a couple of days. It was just she hadn't coped well with the operation. And then when it went on and on and on, 
and it got more and more and more complicated. And she was basically in a wheelchair for two and a half years. And she was then, when she came out of physical pain, she was in chronic, chronic physical pain for two and a half years. And when that stopped, she had a mental breakdown and was also locked in her bedroom, really, for two, another and, two but years. But she was in chronic pain, but being told that she wasn't in pain. Being told that she'd created the pain syndrome herself in order to stop um, having to go back into the world. You know, it was a very complicated situation. But I went, I I think I stopped um, feeling from the neck down is what happened. I kind of had to be the grown-up in the situation. And so I became very in my head and very not in my heart. Um, I don't think I've cried since Scarlett got sick the first time. I just, something major shut down and I got very practical in a way that I think nurses are. You know, they may be able to look at someone dying on the bed in front of them, but what they look at is, do we need to change his continence pads? Should I get the blood pressure done? Can I make him more comfortable? Has he had a cup of tea? And I think nurses go into that place. And I think, so, you know, without meaning to or knowing I was even doing it, I think that's where I went to. So I got very practical and trying to work out what was going on physically with her took an awfully long time. And what I didn't do was I didn't go into my bedroom and cry every night. I never cried. So I just got steely. Do you think that was healthy for you not to cry? Yeah, I do, actually. For you? For me, it was. I couldn't. I mean, what would have been the point? And if I'd yeah. started, when do you stop? You know, yeah. I mean, there was a long time when she was after she was out of physical pain, but in emotional pain where she was, you know, she she was at risk of her own life, really. And I don't I, you can't. I mean, how as a as a sentient, a fully sentient parent, um, how do you handle that? You know, I don't think you can. So yeah. I, I need it to shut down. And I have no regrets about that whatsoever. How did you cope with the ripple effect on the rest of the family? And how, while you were going through, as a mother, just the worst thing to watch your child deteriorate and not understand what was going on and how you can help them and how you can get to them, you then also had three children and Richard and a family to keep going how did you deal with that? And also explain to, to... They were young. I mean, Spike must have been... And, Je, and Charlie must have been young with the sister that, you know, was locked in her bedroom and very unhappy and very sad. And that must be quite a complicated thing to explain to a child, to a sibling. It was. It was really hard. I mean, Spike... Spike was so little that he kind of never knew her before she was sick, not properly. I don't think he remembers her getting sick. You know, he'd have only been six or something. Um, I think they all handled it in different ways. I think I was terribly aware, you know, when you have a child who's sick, one of the joys and one of the nightmares is that people tell you stuff all the time, trying to be helpful. And often it is, and often it's awful. <laughs> Often yeah. it's just, please don't tell me another person you think I should see, another path you think I should try, another thing that happened to someone you know. Give Everyone me having their opinions. Yeah. And also, I was so underconfident that what I was doing was the right thing. And so if I saw a look in people's eyes, which was, really? You're, you're, you're not? Then I it 
killed me. I mean, it crippled me because I just thought, I, all I can do is do what I'm doing. And I don't know if it's the right thing to do. And she's certainly not getting any better, so it probably isn't the right thing to do. But I can't cope with other people's judgment on me as well. But what some people, quite a few people said to me is, you really, really can't forget the other kids. And just because they are coping um, doesn't mean that you can take your eye off them, off the ball. And I was very aware of that. And I absolutely did take my eye off the ball. And I absolutely couldn't prioritise them over a child who was in the levels of pain that she was in. Um, and I couldn't protect them from that, And but I tried to chat about it when I could. They never really wanted to chat about it. It was hard enough. You know, they used to go to bed with earplugs in because they couldn't, you know, she was so unhappy. Before Scarlett got sick, whenever I watched a film which had a couple and their child was died or got ill or something awful happened to them or got, you know, taken by zombies or whatever, it, the parents always got very close they would do a lot of hugging and a lot of, we can get, you know, we'll get her back and we've got here for each other. And, you know, and I always sort of assumed that's how it was, that when you had something terrible happen within a family, it actually brings the family really close together. And the reality is, it's well, for us, it wasn't like that at all. I think very often it, you become an island within your own family and rather than clinging to each other, you just put this wall around you where you go, I can't cope with your pain as well. And I can only do what I'm doing. And to and we're not a support to each other because you think one thing and I think another thing. You don't necessarily think what I think is right. I don't necessarily think what you think is right. I can't bear the fact that you're hurting. You can't bear the fact that I'm hurting. I can't actually look at you hurting. You can't look at me hurting because we love each other and we love this thing that's going wrong in the family. And so... And so you, you disconnect rather than getting closer. And that was a real shock to me. And yeah, Richard and I are very solid and we always have been. And I honestly believe we always will be, which is why we never bothered to get married. But um, it was challenging. It was unbelievably challenging in a way that I wasn't expecting. You know, it was enough that we had this girl for five years who was on the point of, you know, exiting the planet. And... Um, and we, we couldn't comfort each other through it. And your coping mechanisms are so different. So different. It's hard to understand what someone else is doing to protect themselves and what you're doing and and how you're protecting her. And also, I think with a lot of couples, you know that yin and yang thing that couples have, you know, if somebody is a bit hoardy, the other one becomes even more chucky away to yeah. balance it. If someone is very cautious about safety, the other person becomes slightly reckless. You know, you do balance each other out. And so if one of us was going, I think she's a bit better today, the other one would say, I, that's not what I saw, and and vice versa. Yeah. So you're actually always sort of, you know, if one person's being optimistic about it, it gives the other person license to be able to say, this is really bad, isn't it? Which is not what the optimistic person wants to hear. And if the other one's being optimistic, you know, it's so you, so therefore you're never really on the same page. It's much more complicated than I thought it was going to be. Do you feel like your parenting changed with actually with all of them from before Scarlett got ill to when Scarlett started to come out the other side? Do you feel like you educated, you you all became more educated on mental health 
and the boys do, do you think they're maybe more educated than their peers on it and the warning signs and how you feel from day to day do you feel like that changed do you feel like that was something that you would have taught your children if Scarlett didn't get ill that's a really interesting question Matilda I mean I don't know how much anybody actually actively parents I mean, do you do that? Do you think this is the sort of parent I am? I'm going to parent in this way. I'm going not to at all. No, you just so kind of, far from you it. muddle through, don't you? You just do what you have to do, and every day changes. Yeah, and I'm a different parent every day. Uh, yeah, one day I am the best parent in the whole entire world, and the next day I'm having a nervous breakdown, and I feel that I'm the worst parent in the yeah. entire world. And well, that's completely the same with me, and. And so, no, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how if my parenting did change. I'll tell you what did change within our family. Um, there was a long period where people who had gorgeous children who'd never had anything wrong with them and had a coherent and functional and adorable Richard Curtis-style family life, I couldn't see them. I couldn't speak to them. I didn't want anything to do with them. I could only really relate and connect to people who were a bit broken because we were a bit broken. And I don't think when you've been a bit broken, you ever stop being a bit broken. You know, you don't kind of go, you know, it's like you still have a scar on your body when you've had a huge cut. And although you might not have any blood on it anymore, you've still got the scar there. And so I've never felt like the shiny girl. I don't think I particularly felt it before, <laughs> to be honest. But I never, certainly since Scarly got ill, I am more empathetic. I have more compassion. And I think all of us as a family do. I think... I think you, we're all able to embrace the messiness and the darker side of life than we were before or, or the, for the kids that they ever would have been if Scarlett hadn't got sick. Yeah. And I'm really glad for that. I, th- I just think how, you, you know, how you've all come out of it, but mainly how Scarlett has come out of it, is nothing short of miraculous. And the person that she was when I first met her to the person that she is now is just... It's bizarre, isn't it? It's kind of... It was always there, though. The light was always there. And it's just kind of extraordinary. And she, me and Scarlett talk about it. When Scarlett, on Friday nights, I would spend my Friday night age 22 breastfeeding and she would be in her bedroom and we'd be messaging each other about Grey's Anatomy while all of the Notting Hill crew were out <laughs> at the Globe. <laughs> um, we end all the podcasts all the many podcasts that I've done, (laughs) with another question. You know, it doesn't need to be a long answer, but if you could give one bit of advice to your childless self, what would it be? Wow, that's hard. Think deep. My childless self. Um, Okay, I think what I would say... So there was a moment, I forget which kid it was with, but in the early days, maybe five, six weeks in, where everybody else's kids seemed to be sleeping through the night, not crying, not shouting, being those like nice babies that you want to pass around a dinner table because they're happy to be in anybody's arms. And my, I've only ever had one kid that did that and three kids who were babies who were just, you know, screened for Britain. Um, 
And the, that moment of six weeks in, let's say, where you feel that you're just messing up and you're not doing anything right and people are saying go Gina Ford and other people are saying just be relaxed and you want to be the hippie mother but you want to be the hippie mother with the child who is just adorable and beautifully behaved and you they two don't seem to go together very well and and it's just all, and you haven't slept and da, 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 you know that kind of hell hole you get into where you're you look like shit you feel like shit your baby is covered in shit <laughs> And nothing's working and you just think this is awful and everyone else seems to be getting it right. And someone said, to, I remember saying to someone, I think they're meant to be sleeping through the night by this stage. And the person said to me, no, 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 no. All you have to do for the first three months is muddle through. And it's a tiny thing, but it was just that phrase, muddle through. And I would like to extend it and say for the whole of their lives... All you have to do is muddle through because I think it's the expectation that you're going to get something, that you're going to land in a place where you go, oh, now I know what I'm doing. Now I am the grown-up. Now my child is that type of child that I thought they might be, not that I ever thought they were going to be, but now I'm there now. And I don't think you're ever there. I think you muddle through. And knowing that the plan is to muddle through makes everything so much easier rather than feeling there's an end goal you're meant to arrive at next week or next year or by the time they're 13. Just muddle through. I've got a 23-year-old, we're still muddling through. And I like the feeling that my job is to muddle through. Thank you so much for being my first guest on this podcast and for being so kind and open. And thank you to Wise Buddha and Pink Protest Ensembler for being such great collabs. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.